sense of faith and conviction that he is the Son of God. But getting to see that physically, getting to see Jesus in his fully revealed, visually, his brilliant, bright, shining majesty, glory like the sun. They're getting to see Jesus physically, but all he is eternally. Uh, so for us, though, we can look back as, as reading this, and for them, it's just dawning on them. It just recently they have a declaration, like, no, you're the Messiah. We, we believe you're the one who's promised, this kind of thing. And they're starting to fall into really who he is, and they're starting to stop calling him Master and start calling him Lord and so on. But for us, as we get to read this, most of, if not all of us in this room are Christians, we, re- we read this passage and we go, well, yeah, it just proves what I know because I'm reading this with the wonderful hindsight that I know he's the Son of God and now I'm reading the Bible. <laughs> so we're seeing it from a different perspective to them. To them, in this moment, this is just utterly mind-blowing. And within this, um, this passage, this um, uh, uh, recollection that Luke is writing down from eyewitnesses that he's gathered, there are some mysteries in here. There's a little bit of weirdness going on. We will explore some of that, and there is much to glean from it. But we, we also need to be okay with not fully comprehending everything about it and tying everything up neatly. We are talking about God, of course. And while that can be a cop-out, there's also an element of truth to that. There is always going to be some element of mystery about him because he is God who is way beyond us. And even just the the telling of this, it's also in Matthew and it's also in Mark as well. Matthew um, talks about what the disciples eventually told him what happened. Mark writes down what Peter actually saw. Luke here is drawing from other eyewitness accounts as well. If, If my eyes fell on the physical manifestation of God in his actual unhindered majesty, I'd fully expect to not be able to fully describe it. So we just need to be okay with that and understand that's what's happening here. But let me just read Luke chapter 9 from verse 28 to 36. Now, about eight days after these sayings, this is... um, what Jesus and the disciples have been discussing over, as we've been looking at over recent weeks. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but they became fully awake. When they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now, Just to explain the word transfiguration, it's a big word, but it's a very simple word. Transfiguration simply means a change of appearance. Your figure is transformed. So transfiguration, that's that's all it means. And here, as we see, Jesus' appearance, his figure is altered to the point of him becoming 
dazzling white. Or as Mark says in chapter 9 in his depiction of this, he says, Jesus' clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. There's a challenge. <laughs> it was to try. But, so that's what, that's what this is about. It's simply about Jesus' physical appearance being changed to reveal who he is all along. But beyond this being a curiosity or a nice tale in itself, it needs to transfigure our own understanding of who he is and what it means to follow him. And I believe there's something for all of us here to take home about fully seeing more of him in who he is in true form. You mean, yeah, he's the son of God. I believe that. Lord, Lord, will you help us this morning to see more of that in you, to be more convicted, to see more of your glory and also to know what it means to follow you. That's my prayer this morning. May it transfigure our understanding of following of him. Because this is about a revealing of his glory. And there's a film out on Disney Plus at the moment uh, called Free Guy, uh, a Ryan Reynolds film. It's really, really fun. I've, I've seen it a couple of times now. And in that, it's about a, 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 um, a character, a programmed character in a computer game. A guy called Guy, that's his name, and he, he is a programmed character, he's not a human, and he lives in this computer world, and he works in a bank, and he gets up every day, and he goes through the same 24-7 rhythm with his best mate who's the security guard at the bank and all that. But human um, players plug into this game, and they enter this game as their own characters, and they run around with guns and have car chases and this kind of thing. But Guy is part of the background. He's just a guy who goes through his routine in this computer game where all these humans come and have fun around them. But he gets hold of these glasses that these human players get to wear, which shows them how many points they've racked up and where they can get hidden treasure and this kind of stuff. He gets a hold of these pair of, this pair of sunglasses, and as he puts them on, he gets to see what the world is really all about. Suddenly, everything is lifted, and he sees all the secrets, and he sees all the icons, and he sees what people really look like. The veil is lifted for him. And through that in the story, he gets to meet his creator, and the world, in fact, is changed for the better forever. It's a, lot, it's a great story. It's a great fun action film. But for him, his eyes are open to what's really going on behind the scenes that he's been blind to until now. And in many ways, for the disciples here, Peter, James, and John, they have that kind of moment where the, the veil is lifted for them to see Jesus for all he is, and it radically reframes their whole universe. Like, this is... He's more than just a rabbi. This just convicts what we've been falling into all along. He's the Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's the prophesied one. This just seals the deal for them. And they've seen him in his utter glory, unveiled and unhindered. And what's interesting is that Luke here, he's just jotted down what they saw, same as Matthew does, same as Mark does. It's jotted down and they tell us what happens without analysis and without explanation, which is really interesting. So what we're going to do, we're just going to look at three elements of this just to help us learn and have something to take home and walk with. Um, we're going to go for three Ps. I'm keeping it easy and cheesy for you this morning. Three Ps. We're going to look at the presence. We're going to look at the promise. And then we're going to look at the purpose. The presence, the promise, and the purpose. First of all, the presence. Because we need to understand and need to remember that Jesus, of course, is fully God and fully man. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 onwards, says, Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born 
in the likeness of men. You see, Jesus, while remaining the sustainer of all creation, as Colossians 1 tells us, at the same time, nevertheless, he appeared amongst us as a man. He never lost his divinity. He, was never, he never became a hybrid, half and half, 50% human, 50% God. No, he's always been fully God and fully man. While remaining fully God, he also became fully human. We need to remember that. And so, to live among us, that is how we humans at the time experienced his appearance. He's a, he's a man. In fact, the Old Testament tells us, prophetically, that there was nothing about him that made him special. He wasn't the handsomest of handsome, handsome men. He was just an average guy. But here, for a brief moment, Jesus allows three chosen friends the privilege of glimpsing who he truly is in form. And Peter even writes about it later in his second letter to Peter, chapter 1, from verse 16. Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honour and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. You see, this, this glimpse of Jesus' unveiled heavenly presence with the Father himself appearing to give his ultimate stamp of approval is a moment of unhindered presence. See, God who lives in unapproachable light, whose throne room, as we see in the book of Revelation, is a, is a place of purity and of praise, that same God, he is here in this moment on this mountain. It's almost like Jesus has been in disguise until now. And here he is, unhindered. So no wonder the the disciples were dumbstruck. I mean, Jesus charges them to say nothing. It doesn't say it here. It just says that they remain silent after this moment. In um, Mark chapter 9, verse 9, it said Jesus actually charges them to say nothing. Now, what normally happens when Jesus tells people to not say anything? <laughs> they go off and get gobby, don't they? they go to, never guess what Jesus just told me not to tell you about. They get all excited. That's what happens. And yet this time, Jesus tells the disciples to not say anything, and they really do clam up. We need to take notice of that. They are, even Peter is lost for words. Because it's, it's not just because Jesus has been revealed in all his brilliance, as if that wasn't enough. Nor that Moses and Elijah turned up. We'll talk about that in a minute. Not even that Moses and Elijah turn up as well as Jesus being brighter than the greatest bleached thing. Because even then, gobby old Peter is still gobby because he gets clever and he offers to make some shelters for them to have a man camp together, doesn't he? But what shuts even Peter up is when the father himself turns up. Just imagine the hairs on the back of their necks, when the Father himself, he steps in to interrupt the conversation and have the final word. This is my son. Listen to him. Just imagine if you were there in that moment. I mean, just picture it. You've got this, it says this cloud appears. And it's clearly not a normal one. They're up a mountain. They're going to expect a bit of mist, a bit of fog. That's, that wouldn't be a surprise. 
But it's clearly not a normal cloud because it says, verse 34, they were afraid. As if they weren't already, now they really are. This is not a normal cloud. And you can read about this cloud in um, 2 Chronicles chapter 5 when Solomon he rebuilds the temple for God to dwell in. And it says, uh, 2 Chronicles 5 from verse 13, says the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. And then it goes on in chapter 6 to say, Then Solomon said, The Lord has said he will dwell in thick darkness, but I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. See, this thick darkness, he's talking about a cloud so thick even the priests couldn't minister. This was not a normal cloud. It's the glory of the Lord has come into this room so much we can't even see anything. We don't know where we are. We've just lost our bearings. God is here. And in uh, Exodus chapter 19, God says to Moses, I am coming to you in a thick cloud. And then Exodus chapter 20, verse 21, Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. See, this cloud keeps being described as thick darkness. We always think God lives in light. He does. What it means is his glory is just so thick, you just, it just affects all our senses. God is here. And so up on this mountain, even here, there is, this is just more than some cloud. This is the arrival of God's divine presence on earth. God the Father has arrived. So we just got to imagine the weight of that holy moment. And then on top of that, to hear his very voice affirming Jesus as his beloved son. All this is to seal the deal absolutely about who Jesus was and who he is and who he always will be. It's the Father's presence endorsing absolutely, unequivocally, Jesus as God himself present among us. It leaves no wriggle room about Jesus being a good man. We've got eyewitness accounts that tell us you can't, you can't have that as an option. Eyewitness accounts attest that he can only be God himself. The transfiguration is the stamp, it's the Father's stamp of authenticity on Jesus. So that's the promise. We just need to, oh, sorry, that's the presence. We just need to grasp that and hold that and just feel the hairs on the back of our neck when we recognize what is happening here is God's presence comes into this moment. But then we come to the promise it gives us. Because who else turns up? Got Moses and Elijah arrive. What, what is this all about? I mean, are, are there ghosts, ghosts in the Bible? Well, yeah, there are. They're pretty rare. They are not like the ones people want to believe in. And most, you see them in films and that, it's never like that anyway. And any reports in real life you hear of ghosts are either made up, people's imagination, or we're heading down the demonic territory. So don't mess. But the Bible is very clear. These are extremely rare moments when they do happen in the Bible. They see in the Old Testament when Samuel was a naughty boy. Uh, sorry, Saul is a naughty boy and Samuel the prophet turns up. God has words with him. It's not something to mess about. We should not mess around with God's intent for the living and the dead. But there are rare occasions when this kind of thing happens. And there is good reason for these two men to turn up. I don't want to overdwell. Here's the thing. We don't want to overdwell on the mysterious means of their actual appearance. 
what's going on here? How did they get here? Where have they come from? Could you, could you have touched them? Would they have sat in a tent? We're not, let's not focus on the mysterious means of their appearance, but let's focus on the meaning is more important. Because it does tell us something. It tells us, for starters, that it is them. It doesn't say they were apparitions who looked a bit like Moses and Elijah. We, we, we imagine it must have been them. It says it is them. And while there are many theories over the centuries about why they appear, as opposed to anyone else from the Old Testament, for example, there are three things we can know. There are three things we can take home from this. First of all, both of those men have radical meetings with God on a mountain. Both of them on the same mountain. Not the same as this one, but together they both meet with God in a radical way on Mount Sinai. Moses, he... um, uh, he's famous for the Exodus, and as they come out, of, he, he leads God's people out of slavery, out of Egypt. We'll talk about that again in a minute. And he receives the Ten Commandments up on the Mount Sinai, and he also gets to glimpse God's glory. Not the front of God, but God's back is how God says it. He's like, my, my front's too much for you, but you can glimpse me, glimpse the back of me as I pass by. And as a result, Moses' face is shining when he comes down from the mountain. He's met with God's presence up on the mountain. But also Elijah, in 1 Kings chapter 19, up on Mount Sinai, Elijah is fed by God miraculously and God speaks to him in a remarkable way up there. There's, there's a fire and a whirlwind and an earthquake and then a whisper and God is meeting with Elijah. Again, it's about his presence. He has a radical meeting with God up on this mountain. And so here, just the very attendance on this mountain reminds us that this is a rare and unique moment of God pulling back the curtain, not on a whim, but to impact humanity. This isn't just, I'll give you a little curiosity, just to have a bit of fun with, that there's meaning and impact to this, and we have to sit up and, and listen to it. But secondly, about Moses and Elijah, one of them represents the law, and one of them represents the prophets. And so coming together, Moses is the one through whom God brought the law to his people to set the scene for the coming Christ. But Elijah represents the prophets through whom God spoke to his people, setting the scene for the coming Christ. And so coming together, we see a clue that, that Jesus, uh, to, to pointing to Jesus who melds the law and the prophets as the one who will fulfill both. Jesus is the only one who has ever fulfilled the law to the letter on our behalf. He's the only one who's lived the perfect life. The point of the law wasn't to catch them out. It's to point, <laughs> point to people that how sinful they are and to set the scene for the one who can fulfill it, who is perfect and will stand in our place. Jesus fulfills the law, but he also fulfills the promises of God. The prophetic words. The Old Testament is full of God's promises. The New Testament is full of all those coming true in Jesus. And Jesus melds the two together. So again, there's promise there. But also, thirdly, this is what Moses and Elijah tell us. They remind us of the promise of the gospel. They remind us of ultimately why Jesus has come. Because these two men, they are representative of two great historical periods in the story of God's people. You've got Moses. Like I say, he represents the Exodus. It's through him that God released and rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. Moses um, represents freedom and rescue from slavery and bondage, a deliverance that has happened in the past, free from. But then Elijah, he points to the future of hope, a future hope of deliverance as well. Moses represents what God has delivered us from. Elijah represents what God will deliver us into. Um, 
Elijah, for starters, he never died like normal men. You see, in uh, 2 Kings chapter 2, he was lifted to heaven in a whirlwind. Um, it's an echo of Jesus' own ascension. Elijah's departure was a nod to Jesus' earthly departure. But more fundamentally than that, Elijah is also linked with John the Baptist. As you see in Luke chapter 1, there's a direct link made between John the Baptist and Elijah as one who will also herald the promised Messiah. And so together, John the Baptist and Elijah, they fulfill a prophecy in Malachi 4 that says Elijah will restore all things. It's referenced later on about John the Baptist has stepped into Elijah's shoes and heralded the coming Messiah. Elijah and John the Baptist are about preparing the way for kingdom fulfillment for Jesus to then complete. It's about deliverance and future hope. And so Moses represents rescue from darkness and Elijah represents deliverance into light from bondage into eternal security. And so between them, just being there, they tell the great story that Jesus is about to fulfill. Because it says in verse 31, uh, where are we? Verse 31, um, Moses and Elijah appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. It's talking about the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. Jesus was nearing the moment when he, God himself, would provide through the cross rescue from bondage to sin and in his resurrection and ascension would provide eternal hope for a future deliverance. This is what Moses and Elijah's lives tell us. Moses and Elijah paint the same picture as a reminder, rescue from bondage and deliverance into eternal hope. This is why Jesus has come. And so, we have the presence and the promise. We have God's presence here in Jesus. God is among us, brighter than the sun, more powerful than a billion black holes. And even today, by Holy Spirit, he's here now with us too. That same God. And we have his promise as well, that he is the one who rescues us from sin and delivers us into eternal hope, the presence and the promise. Wonderful, wonderful truths to feed our soul on and to enjoy and to walk in in our everyday lives. But how do we do that? What can we do with that practically? What can we do with that now? Well, this is where we come to the purpose as I come to a close because it says right at the beginning of this passage about eight days after these sayings. Now, Mark and Matthew both say six days after these sayings. Let's make it about a week. (laughs) About a week after these sayings. What sayings? Well, we've been hearing Jesus and the disciples having long discussions about a number of things we looked at over recent weeks. Always look at the context of a text. Where is it placed and why? And here we discover this incident is following um, Peter and the disciples' recognition of Jesus as the promised Christ. Yeah, you're the one. You're the one. It also follows Jesus foretelling his death, setting the scene for that. It also follows a passage where um, Jesus is explaining that to follow him also means a life that isn't easy and quite possibly full of its own hardship, which John was talking about last week, about having to pick up our own cross as well. So this revelation, this transfiguration of Christ is nestled up against these conversations about discipleship, about recognising Jesus for all he is and following him against all odds. Because you see, this incident is not 
something just to scratch the disciples' itch for um, something mind-blowing. Give us something fun. Give us, give, give us, a, give us a euphoric experience. Give us, give us something. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not something for Peter, James and John to then get a lifetime of free dinners out of. Have some more olives. Do you want some more pudding? Tell us that story again about Jesus was up the mountain. Well, there I was with my mates James and John and we were having a lo- just a normal everyday uh, moment and you never guess what we saw. It's, it's not about getting a lifetime of free dinners out of something. This, this moment is embedded so deeply within what it means for them and us to follow Jesus all our days. Because it didn't bode, bode well physically for them, did it? <laughs> For Peter, James and John. It didn't go well. Um, for us, too, there is at least the very, at the very least, there's the possibility, even in this country, of kickback for following Christ, of ridicule or trials because we follow Jesus. And again, that's what John was talking about last week. You see, Jesus isn't a rabbi. He's not just a good man. He's the majestic and holy Son of God, and that demands all the devotion that we can muster. However that might turn out for us, in a world that in itself is self-absorbed and naturally resistant to Jesus' invite. That's the world we have to live in. That's the world Jesus is sending us on mission into. We have to recognise that doesn't mean an easy life. But we need to understand that he is worth it. But here's the thing. These three disciples had this amazing moment, which helped seal the deal for them. But we also have to recognise there are nine other disciples that didn't have this experience. Three quarters of the disciples did not get to see Jesus in all his physical heavenly radiance, and yet they too still recognised Jesus for who he truly was. And bar one of them, obviously, they were equally called to be instrumental in the birth and establishing of Jesus' church, to give every fibre of their being to his life-transforming mission. And here's the point, we, we don't need euphoric, mind-blowing moments to meet with the living God. We just need to truly acknowledge him for who he is and respond appropriately in our everyday walk. I just want to to encourage you. Sometimes we hear some wonderful stories about people who have met with God in a very unique and special and remarkable way. Brilliant. That was right for them. But we need to not think our Christian life is lesser because we haven't had that. Does that make sense? We just need to be very careful. One day, we will see him face to face. In all his unhindered glory, the Bible promises that, that is true. One day, I keep thinking about that moment sometimes, it's like, I'm going to see him face to face. And it just, my heart swells at the thought of it. I know that day's coming. But until then, it's Hebrews 11, verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance of all things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Nine out of twelve of the disciples had the conviction of what wasn't seen, as opposed to these three here, and they still gave up their lives for him. These three disciples were allowed a glimpse of Jesus' unveiled glory, and John had another, in his old age, another vision of Christ in his unveiled glory, in, as we see in Revelation chapter 1. But even after this moment, Peter still went on to deny Jesus. All the disciples ran away and hid <laughs> at some point. What truly transformed them all was the resurrection and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is still available for us 
to. It's not about seeking after exciting experiences, but simply seeking after him. Very different and much, much better. So I just want to leave it there. I just want to keep it simple this morning. Presence, promise, purpose. His presence. Have you recognized Jesus for who he really is? And Lord, even when we have, we open our eyes to more of who you truly are. Promise, are you rest, resting in the truth of his having saved you from your sin? Do you rest in that? And do you rest in the fact that you know your future is secure? You can rest in that. Lean on his promise. And then the purpose. Are you content in walking daily with Jesus, not seeking the adrenaline rush highs, but simply knowing him? Is that enough for you? Let me, let me pray for us. Lord, we recognize you for who you are. We acknowledge that even this morning as we set, come together in this place, we, we proclaim you as King. We proclaim you as Lord of all lords and God of all gods and we love you for it. But Lord, even when our everyday lives, they kind of swamp our minds and our hearts and our thoughts and we lose sight of you sometimes, just give us a bigger perspective, a bigger impression of you and your majesty. May you eclipse everything in our lives. May you truly shine brighter than the sun in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. We welcome you to do that by Holy Spirit. In whichever way is appropriate to each of us as individuals, will you burn brighter in us and through us, we pray. Help us to seek more of your presence in our everyday moments. Help us to lean and rest on your promise that you, in you, in Christ, we are, we are saved, we have been saved, we will be saved, that we are safe in you. And help us to be content with the daily walk of just walking alongside you and you'll provide whatever experiences we need along the way. We don't want adrenaline rush moments. We just want more of you. But even as we come to sing our songs now, may we truly gather around your presence, praise you for your promise, and seek you first in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.